I'm reminded of um, one of my favorite quotes when uh, John F. Kennedy hosted a dinner for every living Nobel Prize winner in the White House, and he said, I haven't, there hasn't been such a collection of brain power in this room since Thomas Jefferson dined alone. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca Huntley just told me that she has three degrees. I can't remember how many Nick has, but he has degrees from both Oxford and Cambridge, which must make boat race day pretty difficult. <laughs> and uh, Marcia Langton is a professor and no doubt has, you know, three PhDs. I, haven't, I, did, I didn't uh, get time to ask you. One PhD. There you go. I am a, a simple arts graduate, and you know what you say to an arts graduate. Can I have fries with that? <laughs> um, so, I should introduce you more formally. <clears throat> Marcia is professor of, is a foundation chair of Indi Australian Indigenous, Indigenous Studies at the University of Melbourne and has been since February 2000. She's an anthropologist, geographer, and commentator on Indigenous issues. Uh, Nick is BBC New York correspondent and UN correspondent, and was here for how many years as, as a BBC Australia correspondent? I always used to tell the BBC five, but it was in fact seven. I always used to subtract two, so they wouldn't <laughs> drag me away. <laughs> and is the author of a book which many of you, I suspect, may have read, The Rise and Fall of Australia. And Rebecca listens to people. She is a researcher and author. Her background is in publishing academia and politics. But a lot of what she does is just go out and listen to Australians, take the temperature, take the pulse of Australia. Is that fair? Yeah, it just makes me sound a bit creepy, really, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think there are far too few <laughs> listeners in, uh, in Australian society. But uh, tonight, uh, this morning, We'll all be talking rather than listening, I hope. And I'll just preface this with a minute or so of my own blah. I just want to put, it, put all this in some kind of international perspective. I think that there is a worldwide sense in the democracies, <coughs> a growing worldwide sense that, that politics as such is broken. Uh, you, notice, you may have noticed Ed Miliband, the British Labour leader, paying court to the comedian Russell Brand, the self-styled revolutionary who is urging everybody of his age and younger not to vote in the UK elections. There are, in Britain and all over Europe, there are, there's, there's a rise of parties of the right of the extreme, of the eccentric, one way or another. There's a deep dissatisfaction with conventional political parties. Uh, there, we've seen what's happened in Greece. There's still extreme turmoil in Greece uh, as economic conditions bite. And there are a lot, of, a lot of countries in Europe where economic conditions have bitten very hard. Spain, Greece, notably. And around the world, we also have countries like Turkey, which appeared to be on the road towards greater democracy, moving back towards dictatorship. We are in a region which is very heavily dominated now 
by China economically, and China is in quite possibly on the brink of major change for the worse economically. There are a lot of people talking about the possibility of the Chinese bubble bursting. We're already seeing some effects, early effects of that because the Chinese demand for the, the things that we dig out of the ground has dropped so much and that's already starting to affect Australia. So I think so those are some of the areas where we might be traversing tonight, politics, economics and change, global change, how it may affect Australia. And I, while everybody will be talking about domestic issues, I think we need to put it in that sort of uh, global context. We can't look at ourselves as, as uh, separated from the rest of the world. The way we're going to do this is for each panellist to talk for about 10 minutes about what's good about Australia, what's bad about Australia and what we should do about it. And I'd like to start with you, Marcia. Thank you, Mark. Um, and the other Mark as well. And uh, <clears throat> my, my singular idea for solving the um, most long-standing political problem in Australia, and that is the relationship between Indigenous people and the nation is uh, what a very large number of Aboriginal leaders are calling empowered communities. The empowerment of Indigenous communities through a very structured, designed process um, is the best policy idea in many decades to resolve the federalist problem the, that's already been spoken about. Um, it is without doubt the case that the federal state um, tensions over money, tax and so on, uh, are where the source of our problems in sustaining Indigenous communities arise in the first instance. And that's the problem that we have to solve. And the empowered communities design does that. But, you know, there's the very simple moral issue of empowering communities. Why should it be the case in this rich First Nation that is so highly regarded internationally in the United Nations, in other international agencies, in peacekeeping, um, in the global economy, continue to suppress and treat Indigenous people as uh, native mendicants? Um, and, you know, both sides of politics do it in their own way. Um, the imagination as to where we stand in the nation is bereft of any ethical um, structure. And uh, I think it's about time everybody started listening to our idea. Um, there's a grand document on the Prime Minister's t desk. Um, I want to see Australians grapple with this idea and uh, get out of the rut of, well, for instance, you know, another thing that happened recently that hasn't been mentioned here yet uh, is that um, um, Premier Colin Barnett engaged in what looks very much like dog whistling uh, in Kalgoorlie, and then he was joined, unfortunately, by our Prime Minister, 
to suggest that um, some hundreds of Indigenous communities will be closed, forcibly closed. At least that's what we heard on the media. Now, some weeks after widespread protests, um, the truth comes out and it's nothing like that. There will be a process to assess the sustainability of communities, which uh, we have already done and we have a method for doing it. So I'm glad to see that uh, there's been a shift in what looks like to me, dog-whistling politics. And if we have a proper place in the nation, a proper place in the Federation that we ourselves have designed, then, you know, everybody can go home and stop feeling guilty. Do you want to describe a bit more what the plan involves? Okay. So what happens at present is that because of the long history of exclusion of Indigenous people from uh, the nation, because of the constitutional history, and I won't go into that, it's quite detailed, but basically Indigenous people were not um, part of the Federalist structure until after the 67 referendum. But the hangover of uh, that first 70 years of the Federation is that the states do not treat Indigenous people as citizens of the state, deserving of the same services as other citizens of the state. And in fact, that um, apart, let's call it what it is, apartheid, um, which is, you know, better or worse in, in different jurisdictions um, and different areas of, of states, um, is then compounded historically by the Commonwealth coming in in the Whitlam era and granting certain kinds of special Indigenous rights, limited rights. Um, and then the state, for instance, um, say, land rights in the Northern Territory, um, which was meant to be a national legislation, but it didn't ever become so. But as a result, successive Northern Territory governments refused to fund Indigenous communities on Aboriginal land because they said it was a Commonwealth responsibility. So that gave all the other states a narrative and so they too refused to fund Indigenous communities and they simply said, well, that's a Commonwealth responsibility. But then to make it worse, the Commonwealth government departments then ganged up on um, the Department of Aboriginal Affairs and later ATSIC and now, you know, many iterations later, the office that deals with um, Indigenous affairs in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, and so we don't get any services or nothing much to speak of from, say, uh, the Department of Primary Industry, or, you know, whoever is responsible for primary industry, industry, infrastructure, uh, and so on. So that's the problem. How do you break down... Okay, so what was... How do you change the structure? It's clearly a structural problem you're talking about. It's, a, it's the problem of federalism and the exclusion of Indigenous people. So, yes, it's profoundly structural. So what we're saying is this. Uh, instead of, you know, plane loads of bureaucrats washing up on our shores and annoying us about every little detail and collecting TA and so on, to travel allowance as they go through our communities, what we would like is for them to stay away for most of the year. We, our leaders do the planning through regional organisations um, invite them and other government representatives at appropriate times to put together the plan, 
pool of funding from the federal, the state, um, from each of the relevant departments to implement the plan and, and to have a pool fund that is the budget for the plan that's designed by the local region. It's sort of, okay. you know, radical <coughs> idea, isn't it? <laughs> it, certainly, it's, it certainly sounds uh, logical. Uh, so f we go from the <coughs> perspective of the first Australians to the perspective of a, a non-Australian, somebody who's been <laughs> viewing this country as an outsider, very deliberately, but uh, has uh, married into the country, has a stake in it through his own children too. What's, what's your idea of, first of all, what's good about Australia now, what's bad, and what should we do about it? Look, it's ex extraordinarily generous to invite an Englishman, a POM, to talk about the future of Australia. <laughs> uh, I feel a bit like a Trojan horse that's been wheeled into this sacred inner sanctum to wreak havoc. But uh, I promise I won't, because as Mark says, I'm a stakeholder. The three most important people in my life, my wife and two children, uh, are Australians. Um, maybe I'll become one before the end of my life uh, as well. It's also a great privilege to speak in the Sydney Opera House. This building's always had a mesmerising hold on me, and I've always thought it's the kind of perfect national symbol, the perfect badge of identity, because it seems to me to encapsulate uh, your split personality as a nation and many of the internal contradictions. I mean, when it was built, it was this great uh, adventure, this uh, symbol of post-war optimism, the international search for an architect, the way that the building was configured so it looked out onto the ocean. But of course, in the enforced resignation of Jornitz and the fabulous Danish architect, another side of the national personality came out, which was a parochialism, a conservatism, a fear of such a revolutionary design. Uh, when the Opera House was opened in October 1973, the Queen cut the ribbon, uh, which was proof of the umbilical link with Britain. Uh, but the ceremony also included uh, recognition of the first Australians, an actor playing Benelog, Benelong um, gave this extraordinary oration from the very roof of the Opera House. It was built by immigrants from Southern Europe, a symbol of the demographic changes that overtook this country. And I often thought that that extraordinary concert that the black American opera star Paul Robeson performed in the scaffolding of the Opera House was a kind of musical foreshadowing, in a way, of the end of the white Australia policy. The music of the first weekend, I think you had Sublime Beethoven, you had Rolf Harris singing Time a Kangaroo Dance Sport. It spoke of the high culture uh, and the low. Uh, this yeah. building's been the focal point of anti-war no. protests. You remember No War that was emblazoned in red paint on one of the sails, but it's also hosted George W. Bush. Spencer Tunick had a massive nude installation here. Thousands of Sydney-siders came along early one morning and stripped off, but it's also hosted the Pope. But I think the main reason why I've always regarded the Sydney Opera House as this great Australian symbol is because it's glorious and yet it's unfinished. And an awful lot of people don't seem to be that worried about that. Uh, and I think, um, I think that for me is why this building has become um, such a great symbol. Um, to ask me what I think is great about Australia and bad about Australia is a little bit like asking me to summarise my book, uh, The Rise and Fall of Australia. Um, and the rise and fall is not a linear thing. I don't describe a, a kind of rise that's been followed by a fall. The rise and fall of Australia, which struck me when I was a correspondent here, was happening simultaneously. Well, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by the rise? Well, uh, you've become the lifestyle superpower of the world. Uh, you look at the livability indices, and they show that Melbourne and Sydney usually come out on top. In the UN development index, you've come second 
only to Norway. Um, what has long been regarded as an imitative country has become an emulative country. People want to ape your lifestyle. That's why people queue up in Notting Hill outside Bill Granger's new restaurant, so that they can taste scrambled eggs done the Sydney way. It's why people in Williamsburg, the hipsters of Williamsburg, queue up uh, to get a coffee that's brewed by an Australian barista. Uh, you have become this lifestyle superpower. You see it in your culture. I talk in the book about how the cultural cringe has been replaced by the cultural creep. This growing international appreciation and recognition that Australia, a relatively small nation, has become a global cultural powerhouse. Uh, you see it most obviously in the success of people like Kate Blanchett. And what a fabulously cringe-busting thing that she took a, a Sydney production of a streetcar named Desire to New York and people in the New York press regard it as one of the greatest productions of that play they'd ever seen. But it's a mistake to regard Australia's cultural success just in terms of Kate Blanchett and the other actors that have done so well in Hollywood. You see it now in the writers, Richard Flanagan winning the Booker Prize. You see it in the dancers. You see it in the architects. You see it in the sculptures. You see it in the painters. You see it in the photographers. You see it in the cameramen. And, uh, you know, this time last week, for instance, I was sat in Carnegie Hall in New York listening to the Australian Chamber Orchestra, a, a performance of extraordinary musicality and extraordinary physicality. If you've seen the ACO, you'll know what I'm talking about. They're an incredibly physical orchestra. But I wonder how many Australians know that the Chamber Orchestra is regarded as the finest in the world. Um, a lot of your commerce is just having great success at the moment. Companies like Westfield, companies like Macquarie. Macquarie is the largest non-governmental owner of infrastructure in the world. Westfield is the largest owner of shopping malls in the world. When they open up at Grand Zero recent, in, 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 in the next few months, the shopping centre there, it's going to have Westfield above the door. And of course, you've had this extraordinary economic success that commentators like Paul Krugman have described as an economic miracle. You've had near on a quarter century without a recession. And that's extraordinary. And it's not just down to the mining boom. There have been three global recessions in the last 20 years or so, and you've avoided the first two without the mining boom kicking in. So there must be something else happening. And what I suggest that is, and arguably it's the greatest achievement of contemporary Australia, is you've created this Australian model. The era of great reform in Australian politics, starting off with Hawke, starting going through Keating, in the early years of the Howard years, have created an, a, a, an economic model um, based on judicious regulation and carefully calibrated policy settings that have stood you in enormously good stead. It's one of the reasons why you managed to avoid the subprime banking crisis, because your banks are, are sensibly regulated and you didn't have the problems that the British and the Americans had. Now, this model has proven to be uh, recession-proof. The question is whether it will continue to be politician-proof, because I think that's the big problem facing Australia right now. You face a political crisis. You've had the most stable economy in the Western world, but you've had the most unstable politics. You've had four prime ministers in the last five years. If Malcolm Turnbull or Julia Bishop take over by the end of the year, you'll have had five in five. Now, that is worse than Italy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Canberra has become the coup capital of the democratic world. It sounds like hyperbole, but it's not. You are. At the state level, too, last 13 years, there have been 64 changes of leadership. Again, that's Italianite. And uh, you've had this great reform period, followed by a period of revenge. And the bloodletting and the cannibalistic fury that you get in the party rooms in Canberra, you see it on the floor of the House of Representatives as well. It's a very ugly spectacle. 
Um, many Brits have come over to Canberra professing to be great fans of your adversarial system and they've watched Question Time and they thought, oh my God, this is unbelievable what is happening here. I remember the first night I was ever in Canberra, I was sat next to a, a Labour parliamentarian and throughout the dinner, uh, people were coming up to him and saying what a great job he'd done, slapping him on the back, saying, good on you, mate. And I asked him what he'd done. I said, did you give a great speech today in Parliament? Did you ask a great question? He said, no, I got ejected from Parliament. This is a system that rewards bad behaviour. <laughs> and that's deeply problematic. Uh, politics has become excess excessively oppositional. Um, nowadays, elections are won in a barrage of negativity. And sometimes oppositions don't even have to come up with any policies. They just wait for the government of the day to self-destruct, which is what happened to Labour and what's happened to a certain extent with the Abbott government as well. Uh, your politics has become very petty. The first thing the Abbott government did when it came to power was stop Steve Brax becoming the Consul General in New York. That seems to me a pretty petty thing to do as your first act of government. Uh, what you tend to get now is rather than po uh, new governments coming in with positive programmes, they tend to offer correctives. For Abbott, it was trying to stop the boats. It was getting rid of the carbon tax. It was getting rid of the mining tax. For, for Kevin Rudd, it was signing up to Kyoto, apologising to Indigenous Australia and fixing work choices. But after they'd done that, you kind of think, well, what comes next? And there isn't much there. You've got a real political talent problem in this country. I was often struck by, you know, I compiled a mental list over the years of the impressive Australians I've met. And when you compared it with the parliamentarians, if that was represented as a Venn diagram, there would be a very, very narrow bit that was shaded. Um, and you have this problem now also of the, um, the emergence of a political class. Uh, for the first time in 2010, the parliament that assembled in Canberra was over 50% made up of professional politicians. Um, this is part of a global malaise, no doubt about it. But in Britain next week, of the 700 candidates who are standing for election, 30% are professional politicians. In Australia, you've gone over 50%. And I suggest that is hugely problematic because these people think politically... Uh, they are overly politicised. Um, you have this uh, real crisis now in the quality of your politics. So what do you do about it? Well, you know, far be it from me to suggest in a prescriptive way what to do. But here's some ideas you might want to think about. Uh, if you want to lower the temperature of Parliament, well, perhaps you reduce the level of prime ministerial participation in question time. The Brits did this in the 1950s in deference to Winston Churchill. They didn't think he should face the daily exertions of the dispatch box. And when Tony Blair became Prime Minister, he decided to limit question time to just once a week. Ministers would face questions on other days, but the Prime Minister would just face questions once a week uh, because he thought it was ludicrous, this punch and duty, and so much time was being devoted to this parliamentary theatre. Now, unfortunately, it hasn't had much of an impact on the punch and duty of question time. That still happens. But the good thing is, it only happens once a week. It's a short boxing match. At the moment in Australia, you've got this week-long pavement brawl that starts on, on Monday and continues till, to Thursday. Um, one of the things you might want to look at is Senate reform. It seems to me crazy that some people who emerge as senators with quite influential uh, power, and I'm thinking of people like Stephen Fielding, you know, the guy from Family First, people like Ricky Muir. These guys got to Canberra on a sliver of a vote. Stephen Fielding got 2% of primary votes in Victoria. Uh, Ricky Muir got a record-breaking 0.5%. <laughs> I mean, that's hugely problematic that these people end up having so much power. I'd also argue that you actually need more parliament than less, which I know sounds paradoxical. Uh, but your sitting times are so short in 
Canberra. The British Parliament sits for about 120 days, and I'm not saying Westminster's got it sorted, far from it. Uh, they go for about 120 days, you go for about 60. And what this means is that there's a kind of pressure cooker effect. Everything gets concertinaed, legislation gets rushed. You have political deadlines that are set by the departure board at Canberra Airport on a Thursday night. And <laughs> um, what it also means that these short sessions become this kind of make or break. They're always portrayed as showdowns. They're always billed as, you know, is so-and-so going to survive this session? It's a crazy politics, and it might be improved by, by lengthening it. Actually, increasing the time in Canberra might encourage more people of talent to get involved as well. Um, one thing that British parliamentarians are able to do is live in London with their families. It gives them a hinterland. Canberra's become this political dormitory town that people go down to do politics in. And there isn't much of a hinterland. And the final thing I'd say is that, uh, and this I think is the biggest reform that you could think about, is extending the length of Parliament, uh, parliamentary terms. You have three years at the moment, you really need to make it four or five, because short-termism is built into every single political decision. And when Prime Ministers inevitably run into mid-term doldrums, they automatically face leadership speculation and leadership challenges because people fear they haven't got enough time to recover. And that has created this awful cyclic effect in Australian politics right now and a real crisis of politics. And I think this is not just a personnel problem, it is systemic and it needs to be part of a bigger constitutional overhaul because if Australians think that yet another leadership change is going to dramatically alter and improve the quality of politics, I think they're fooling themselves. Thank you, Nick. Rebecca. Uh, I've, I've written some notes, but as a researcher, you'd be lucky that I don't have a 100-page PowerPoint. <laughs> I can give you that, though, if you're interested. Um, <clears throat> look, I want to address the topic, and then I want to do, as my fellow speakers have, talk about that greatest success and greatest failure and my idea for Australia. Um, the theme for today is that, you know, we can't decide which Australia we live in, and I think that's true. I saw that particularly in that immediate post-GFC environment in Australia. There was this sense <clears throat> of, we've survived this. Um, aren't we lucky? We remain lucky. But to what extent will we continue to remain lucky? And this brought on this kind of perverse scenario of consumer sentiment in 2009, 10 and 11 and so on, where economically things looked rosy. We kept having politicians saying, look, this is a beautiful <coughs> set of numbers. But Australians didn't believe it. They were, they were pessimistic, they were careful, they were cautious. And I mean, look, it's one of those things economists always say, if people are spending, they feel good about the future. Now, I always questioned a straightforward link between spending on shoes and optimism about the future, I've got to say. Mm -hmm. I think that they weren't spending. They were worried about the future, but that wasn't the only reason they weren't spending. Um, and look, it continues to be the case, and economists see this as irrational, and, and particularly overseas visitors. I spend a lot of time with overseas visitors of big corporations coming here, asking me to explain Australians to them. The, the look on their face when I say we're worried about asylum seekers, they go, how many do you get? We're from Italy. <laughs> you know, we're from Turkey. We're from Pakistan. You're worried about asylum seekers? Um, look, Australians are worried. What is our economy and society going to look like when we've done digging up everything <coughs> from the ground, selling everything that grows on the ground? Um, what are we going to do? They're looking for leadership, not just from uh, the political class, but from business, and they are not getting it. And hence, we have this kind of raft of worries about what seems to be unrelated things, but they're not unrelated. Cuts to education and healthcare, immigration, asylum seekers, housing prices, sale of land to foreign companies, global warming, investment in innovation, and coal seam gas. 
So I've been asked to, to pick one prime example of our success and prime example of our failure, and essentially they're two sides of the same coin. And I want to talk about how we see ourselves as a migrant nation. I've been very lucky in the last 10 years of listening to Australians and doing broad social research that I've also done very specific research for SBS. Uh, and I want to thank Georgie McLean and SBS, Georgie's here today, for allowing me to do that work. Um, and so what I've done is, you know, my team has sat down with first, second, third generation migrants and particularly asylum seekers and talked to them about how they feel. And two things have, come, have become very clear to me. It is our greatest success that we have managed to, uh, to be, that, that we are a migrant nation and this has created an incredibly strong, resilient, dynamic and interesting place to live. But at a high cost to those migrants themselves because essentially to be allowed in to everything that Australia offers, they have had to swallow the racism that they've accepted, particularly that first generation. They've had to knuckle down and educate their kids and they've often pushed their kids to become as Aussie as possible, as quickly as possible. And sometimes being Aussie means being racist to the next generation of migrants and also to Indigenous Australians. Um, well, when I do these groups, particularly of asylum seekers, what strikes me is the extraordinary patriotic and intensely positive outlook they have about this country. If you ever want to feel good about Australia, you do a group with um, migrants, um, first-generation migrants and asylum seekers. Now, of course, there's a pressure for them to say this is a great nation because, you know, woe be it that they would criticise this country because there would a tonne of bricks would come down on them about being ungrateful. So they are you know, definitely extremely popular, uh, extremely positive about Australia. If you dig a bit more, there's incidents of extraordinary racism that they face. But you walk away from these groups feeling incredibly proud to be Australian. I'll give you a short quote from a, a group, uh, a piece of research we conducted for SBS. Uh, a group of Somali men in their 40s, so asylum seekers, he said... I'm working five days a week, I have a family, I have three kids, my next thing is to buy a house, I love Australia. Peace above everything. If you're working, it's good, you have money, I'm very happy to be in Australia. Now, this is the same group of men, part of this research was we were also asking them to, to talk about what they, the media they consumed, newspapers and television. And um, not this particular man, but another man said, the only thing I don't understand is, is home and away. Why are those blonde, good-looking people that live by the sea so unhappy? <laughs> and to me, that, that explains Australia. Why are these blonde, good-looking people who live by the sea always complaining? It's a great question. It's one that I've made a career of trying to explain to people. Um, look, the other thing that was incredibly po positive coming out of this research we did for SBS is we <coughs> asked... Uh, we, did a big we did a big quantitative study, quantitative research is not my forte, but we did a big quantitative study on, and one of the questions we asked everybody was about their sense of belonging. To what extent do they feel that they belong to Australia, that they feel comfortable here? Second generation migrants were as likely as long-term residents to feel a sense of belonging. So within one generation, we had created a migrant class that were as committed to this country as people that had been here for seven or eight generations. Now, our failure is our inability for our leaders to sell this to the Australian population. 
I've conducted 10 years of research with Australians, and whenever you ask them, what do you think one of the benefits are to multiculturalism, they will say, oh, we've got really good food now. <laughs> you know, and, you know, you kind of go, and? <clears throat> oh. <laughs> Some, they really struggle. Now, if after everything that we have done as a nation, and we are all migrants except for the first people, if the only thing we can come up with is a better quality of food court, then if that's the perception, then this is a dramatic failure. Um, Donald Horne wrote in The Lucky Country, Australia has managed to be an immigrant country for most of its history without even thinking about it. And it's this inability to really think about it that is a problem. It's a huge failure of our leadership, our corporate leadership, our business leadership, media, everybody really, that we cannot think much beyond this food cult multiculturalism. And we think too that, that the other thing that's very clear is in the research that I've conducted is people question the link between increased immigration and increased prosperity, that we will be a better, more interesting nation if more people come here. And before I talk about my idea, I, I want to share with you an off-the-record comment by a, a... I did a big piece of research on the future of Australia with the demographer Bernard Salt, and as part of that, we conducted a range of off-the-record interviews with corporate leaders, who frankly said extraordinary things off the record. I wish they'd say it more on the record, but they don't. That's another problem. Anyway, this one CEO of a very, very large property company said to me, um, I look around the boardrooms of Australia, we talk about the lack of diversity of women, but really the women that there are almost always white women, it is incredibly white. The brightest kids coming through our schools are not white. A lot of them are first, second generation, Indian, Asian kids. They will look around our parliaments and our boardrooms and they will not see that there is a place for them and we will educate them and they will wave goodbye, leave us with their hex debt and they will go and join a gold-collar class <coughs> of workers that will generate prosperity for other countries and not ours. So we have, forget about the, forget about the values, forget about the ideology, we have an economic imperative to retain the most talented people and hardworking people in our country, and many of them are from that migrant class. We do not want to create an entrenched migrant class of workers in factories, the ones that still exist, but particularly in that casualised, serviced industry, hugely exploited. I've done groups, particularly of women uh, from Thailand and um, from Vietnam that fall into that class. And we also don't want to create a second generation of angry young men and women uh, who live in a continued environment of hostility towards their religion or towards their colour, Muslim men and women from Africa in particular, that will reverse trends of the past. So the second generation that works hard, gets the education, becomes integrated, has that sense of belonging. We are in danger of reversing that trend with these groups. So what should we do about it? Certainly we need to combat racism at an institutional level. We're good at it at school, and then at the moment kids graduate from school, we think we don't need to talk about it in any other institutions that we're part of. Um, we need to think, and political parties need to think about who they pre-select. Um, you know, there's always been a push to redress the gender inequality in parliaments, but if it's just about putting more white women in parliament, I question how far we need to go with that. Um, my single compelling idea, it sounds like a small idea, but, I mean, I do think we need to increase our asylum seeker quotas, and I say that 
because we have a very small number of asylum seekers and we have this massive panic. So if we're going to have a panic, we might as well increase the number. <laughs> like, there are people who would rather have... The, if there's three or four people coming on boats, they're going to panic. That's a reality. Um, but I think what we need to match with that and we need to listen to asylum seeker communities as they say the way to belonging to Australia is to learn English and have a job. Uh, and one of the things that I think that we should see more funding and more support for is social enterprise businesses, um, some of them quite small that are leading the way here. So today I'm a model for this. Today I'm wearing a dress um, that's made by the social outfit. They have a shop in Melbourne and a shop in Sydney. They um, take fabric that's been designed or rejected from all kind of, you know, um, remnants of fabric from the fashion industry, and they train and employ on permanent um, contracts rather than casualised contracts asylum seekers, not only to sew those clothes, but to design them. Um, there's another organisation called the Bread and Butter Project, which is run by the people that um, started Burke Street Bakery. They too um, take asylum seekers and train them to make kind of, you know, the other thing that Australians love, coffee and sourdough bread. You know, God forbid that we would have a normal bread. Um, <laughs> we're normal bread. But the reality is, is, that, is that one way to really convince the Australian population that we shouldn't keep freaking out about migrants that come to this country, however they come, is to recognise that they play an essential part and to show in innovative ways through these social enterprises businesses that they can... Um, and that is, that is a challenge for all of us to think beyond, you know, a better class of Thai food as the, um, the greatest contribution that migrants make to our country. There we are, that's it. Fantastic. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Martha. So we've got an absolute mass of material to think about and talk about there. And uh, fortunately, we have a good, solid chunk of time to talk about it, and I'd like to take questions from the audience. I don't want to be too prescriptive in limiting you to simple, short questions, but I'm, by saying that, I'm not uh, encouraging long, didactic statements, and uh, I may have to be ruthless if that happens. But, uh, you know, I'd, by all means, ask questions, but I'd like to get some dialogue going. So, if if you have ideas, I'm not <coughs> ruling out that you put ideas, but see if you can put them in the form of questions as well. So I don't know who wants to start. Any hands up? Mm -hmm. right, one in the, right in the front. Nick, if you ever decide to be an Australian citizen and stand for election, you've got one vote for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not very enticing, to be honest, but... Um... <laughs> And Canberra isn't very enticing. We might need to repeat the question. The question was uh, was uh, suggesting that if Nick should become a um, uh, an Australian citizen, he might like to stand for Parliament because he's got a vote <laughs> right here. There's a lady in red. There's a lady with a question. You want to stand up and um, I don't know if there, if there are mics or. <clears throat> um, I think you're right. There has been a kind of rightward trend in um, a lot of the major... Uh, sorry, the question, the, the question has about... there been a rightward trend in global politics? Are Conservative parties becoming more Conservative and more neoconservative? Um, and I think that's true to a certain extent. You certainly see it in the Republican Party in America right now, the rise of the Tea Party, 
uh, the shrinkage of the, the moderate wing of the Republican Party, what's sometimes called the sensible wing of the Republican Party, uh, the way that the political centre of gravity in the, Australian, uh, in the American Republican Party has shifted from the North to the South, and that's had a very conservatising effect on, on politics. You know, in, in Britain as well, I mean, the Tory party has moved to the right on in, in issues like immigration because they're worried about the threat from UKIP and there's uh, the United Kingdom Independence Party. Uh, so there are pressures from the right um, which have led a lot of conservative parties around the world to move further towards the right. Um, but I mean, picking up on what Mark was saying earlier, I mean, about a global democratic malaise, I think it's evident in all sorts of countries at the moment. And there's a rejection of the political class, whether they're left-wing or right-wing. Uh, there's a very strong mood of anti-incumbency at the moment. You're seeing examples of this in the fragmentation of politics. The big story of the British election next week is, is, is just that, the rise of these smaller parties. And you're seeing that in Australia as well. The fragmentation has pr uh, produced people like the Greens. The fragmentation has produced people like the Palmer United Party. It's a very strong public disaffection. Spring has brought with it a cloudburst of electoral politics around the world. Hillary Clinton's rollout, uh, the start of the Republican presidential primary process, the uh, British election. There's been a cloudburst of electoral politics, but voters, it seems to me, are, are in hibernation. There's no great enthusiasm in America right now for a dynastic showdown between Hillary Clinton <laughs> and Jeb Bush. There's no great enthusiasm in Britain other than the grand swell of support for Nicola Sturgeon, the national, Scottish nationalist leader in Britain. There's a kind of rejection of politics as usual, and it's hugely problematic. And here in Australia, it is particularly pronounced. There was a study from the Lowy Institute conducted last year, and indeed the year before, that showed that 42% of Australians aged between 18 and 39 um, said democracy is not the greatest form of government. You've got over 40% of young people in Australia who are not convinced anymore that democracy is the right model of government. And that is hugely problematic, and it represents, I think, something that's happening globally at the moment. I'll get Rebecca and Marcia to talk about that in a second. But just first, I'll, I've been told that there is a microphone behind the camera over there, and there's a microphone upstairs over in that corner. So if you'd like to ask, if you'd like to be the next to ask a question, if you wouldn't mind just wandering over that way to the microphones, uh, one there and one there. Rebecca. I'd be a bit careful about characterising, having kind of sweeping statements about the world's politics moving to the right and to, to look at Tony Abbott's election as the electorate moving to the right. The electorate... I've never seen an electorate in not just in 10 years, but of the work that Hugh McKay did before me, who elected a Prime Minister they hated more than Tony Abbott. This was not an endorsement particularly of Tony Abbott and his... This was, oh, we need to get rid of the Labor Party and we need to punish them. So that kind of a reaction to incumbency was more about that. And then, of course, if the electorate had moved sharply to the right, you would not have had the reaction to, for example, the budget that you had. Um, you wouldn't have had the reaction to um, Prince Philip becoming uh, a knight. So to, to characterise the Australian... To characterise our, poli our politics as moving to the right is uh, questionable, but to characterise the electorate as moving to the right is not correct either. Uh, it's very, very hard to characterise the mood. It's a weird mix of what would normally be described as left and right on a range of issues. Um, 
what Nick has said, which is absolutely right, is a rejection not so much of left or right, but of politics as done usually by the usual people, communicated in the usual way, which is why you've got those, uh, why those, we've got those rise of small parties that will come up, that will kind of, you know, be in one moment and out the next, you know. So that's, I think, the bigger issue and perhaps the more destabilising issue than, let's say, uh, just a simple move to the right. Asia? Yeah, I, th I, th I think that's right. And you have to remember that um, the Gillard government and the Abbott government um, got in on a, a deal. Um, they didn't have the numbers to um, form government in their own right. So uh, they, did, they did deals with uh, the Greens and, you know, with independents. Um, and the, the real problem in Australian politics, I think, is that we talk about the left and the right, but we don't know what uh, sits behind those two categories. So, you know, I want to ask the question, what is the left now? So, you know, we talk about the right, but what is the left? I mean, the left now looks nothing like what I understood the left to be when I was just, you know, starting out as an adult in Australia. Um, and, you know, we... I think the, the whole idea of uh, what unions were supposed to achieve for, you know, working people has been perverted. Um, and now, the, you know, the unions have all kinds of strange power, gripping control power over um, uh, politics in this country that, uh, that actually suppresses the, uh, the wishes of the larger electorate. So, you know, I, I can say with uh, great certainty that the, uh, the unions have gone against some very important Aboriginal initiatives, like Aboriginal employment, um, because, you know, they, they have, many of those unions have a father-son rule and they don't want us in the workforce. And they have all kinds of sneaky ways of keeping us out of the workforce. And we've had to, you know, spend a lot of money on lawyers to break their hold. So what is the left is a very good question that we need to ask ourselves. How left are some of these Labor Party politicians who purport to uh, represent people? They're not left at all. They're not left wing at all. And actually, I find a far more decent, you know, take on, on what we need to do in Aboriginal affairs from some people on the so-called right, simply because they live in towns where there are large Aboriginal populations and they talk to Aboriginal people. They don't have the imaginary Aborigine of the, of the big cities as, as, you know, the standard bearer of, you know, what should happen to Aboriginal people. I'm, I'm talking about people from country areas with large Aboriginal populations who know that Aboriginal mums and dads want their kids off the streets and in jobs. Um, and, you know, that's a pretty much a universal wish in Aboriginal Australia. But, you know, how often do we hear that in the media or from the, um, you know, in, 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 say, the Labor Party policy on Indigenous affairs? These discussions are not taking place on the left. The left talks about us as if we're, well, I'll say it again, native mendicants. In many ways, the left has become quite racist in, in, a, in a, an odd way that's difficult to explain. And yes, you know, we have problems on the right as well. I'm not party political. I haven't been for a long time. My attitude is, you know, uh, if we're going to get the job done, we have to deal with every government. Noel wrote an article in the recent monthly in which... Noel he, Pearson. Noel Pearson, sorry. Noel Pearson wrote an article in the 10th anniversary monthly in which he said that, you know, his, he met Gullaroy. I, I was there when, in fact, I introduced them. Um, Gullaroy and Apingu of Arnhem Land. And, and he said he's never met a more 
um, outstanding leader, uh, and then Gulleroy proceeded to tell him of the names of every prime minister and, and minister for Indigenous affairs that he dealt with over the course of his life, and how little had come of it all. And so Noel said, um, in response, well, you know, I really hope that, you know, once we deal with these issues of empowered communities and constitution constitutional recognition, this will be my last Prime Minister that I deal with. Um, and, um, of course, that's not going to be the case. Um, you know, he's dreaming if he thinks that's going <laughs> to happen. Um, so, um, you know, the ineffectual, the ineffectual politics on both sides. I can say the same thing. I, being, you know, a good deal older than Noel, I can name quite a few more prime ministers and ministers for Indigenous affairs that I've had to deal with. And, you know, it's worse than two steps forward, one step back. It, in many ways, it was easier for an Aboriginal person to get a job back in the 60s than it is now because it has become so... The workforce is so split between unionised and non-unionised, for instance. Uh, it was, would have been easier, I'm pretty sure of it, to set up an Aboriginal business back in the 1960s than to set up an Aboriginal business now. Um, you know, we have a desperate need to get some policies right, to get some legislation amended to enable Indigenous economic development through business development. And there, there are blockages everywhere. Um, I, I lobby politicians on this regularly. Do you know, I had to explain in great detail why we had to amend the Taxation Act on a very minor point to achieve fairness so that Indigenous people weren't discriminated against. And, you know, they, wouldn't, they weren't interested. They didn't understand the problem. They hadn't bothered to read the materials before them on this, on this legislation. And yet, you know, it made a, a huge difference to Indigenous people. But they, they just weren't interested. So the but left... we got through. I mean, I just got on the phones and got other people as well on the phones and we nagged them till they did it. So, in a sense, left and right are irrelevant in, in quite a lot of cases. Pretty much. I got yeah. no joy on our taxation issues with Labor and uh, didn't get treated much better by the other side. And pretty, it's now a lottery you know, how, as to whether or not we get anything practical done. All right. We go upstairs first and then to this lady here. Right, thank you. Uh, in, in relation to what Nick was saying before about uh, the frequency of our elections, seems to be every three years, to what extent has there been discussion about, say, expanding these terms, maybe to four or five years, like, say, in Canada, the States, or in the UK, so we have less short-term political solutions, maybe some more long-term planning? Well, it's not just the United States and UK, by the way. We have four-year four terms in all the states. It seems yeah. very odd that we have different terms for federal and state yeah. governments. You, you put this to a referendum in 1988 and it got rejected. And one of the reasons was it got enmeshed in a debate about um, Senate um, terms and whether they should be staggered and the double dissolution, deadlock device, all this kind of stuff. It kind of... Um, but back then, I'd suggest that politics was far more stable and far more sensible and there wasn't perhaps the need, the urgent need to change it. Um, one of the things I've been really struck by recently in Australia is this wave of nostalgia for the former Prime Minister who have died, you know, the 
the huge groundswell around the death of Gough Whitlam and the huge groundswell around the death of Malcolm Fraser. And the same will happen when Bob Hawke dies, when Paul Keating dies, and when John Howard dies on the right. The right will venerate John Howard in the same way that the left venerates Gough Whitlam. And, you know, you can't imagine the same kind of groundswell of Tony Abbott or Kevin Rudd or Julia Gillard. You just can't. And, you know, why the discrepancy? Well, you know... To be fair, in 1978... I would never have predicted that groundswell no, no, no. for Malcolm right. Fraser. But I think we now, do like our politicians but now a bit those politicians look like anymore. much larger because this politics looks so small. No, and true. I think, you know, another reason that explains the discrepancy is you could look at Whitlam, you could look at Howard, and you kind of know what they believe in. When you look at these politicians now, it's, it's hard. They don't make ideological plays a lot of the time, they make political plays. What's going to work politically? And I think that's a big difference between the, the past of Australian politics, which did produce this great reform model. That was a very successful period in national life. And now, when you've had this, this political recession in this country that's lasted nine years, I mean, you can date it from 2006. If I can put in my own brief five cents worth here, as, a, as an interviewer, I find it increasingly frustrating to work in this country uh, in the political sphere because it's so hard to get anybody to engage intellectually. Be, uh, I think people are addicted to the, the doorstep, the Canberra door, doorstop or doorstep uh, interview where they can just uh, control the situation, give two answers and go straight in. They're, 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 they are insistent on staying on message. It's very difficult to get them to uh, outline the ideological or intellectual underpinnings of what they have to say. And it was really interesting to me to watch that series, Inside the Commons. Yes. Uh, nobody would say that the British system is perfect and there were chaotic aspects to it, but it was the chaotic aspects that I really liked. It was the fact that individual members of major parties were able to work behind the scenes to put up private members' bills, which were much more important than they are here, and that there was not the punishment that you get here for crossing the floor or even for coming out and making what journalists, to their shame, call a gaffe, which means saying something a bit loose which is not exactly in line with the, the party's policy. That was the, that was the point I was going to make, far back for me to defend the, the nature of the quality of all politicians, but... There is this pressure cooker environment. If I say slightly the wrong thing or if I say something that I might believe in, like, I mean, even if it's silly, like poor people don't drive or climate change is crap, at least, you know, the moments of real candour are quite difficult to squeeze out, not only of the current parliament. So if you, your point, Nick, that if every session is a question time, you know, kind of um, gladiatorial fight, where is the opportunity to have the real discussion? Sometimes in that, that's in the select committee or the committee structure, but even increasingly that's becoming um, scrutinised by the media. Like maybe that's a, a story and this person said slightly the wrong thing. So how do you, you know, ease that, ease that pressure off everything that politicians say? And of course, the next generation of politicians will all be coming up with Facebook pages that were formed before they became politicians. <laughs> so it will be increasingly difficult to go back, oh, you know, when you were 19. I mean, who doesn't say stupid things, date stupid people when they were 19? <laughs> um, we'll all have to keep our receipts of our, of our um, 
you know, bathroom renovations. If we ever, <laughs> ever want to be Prime Minister, heaven forbid that we didn't get the bathroom renovation right. So I think it is a really difficult environment. And Marcia, from what you were saying, it sounds as though there are politicians who aren't even really thinking for themselves. They're very much uh, playthings of their <coughs> own public servants. Well, you know, you have all the media babes who go after the gotcha moment, which <clears> is what you're talking about, right? Um, you know, they're scalp hunters. Yeah. You know, they're less behind interest... the scenes, in terms of when you're and lobbying, it sounds as though there are people there who aren't doing a lot of their own thinking as such. Well, you know, the same kind of, you know, babes are in the political offices, aren't they? And they are... You, you know, you, you have to trawl through such sludge, you know, they're 24-year-olds who sit there writing, you know, a summary of a political science essay, <coughs> and you're trying to get through to the minister, you know, yeah. the amendment to the Tax Act minister. And, you know, you know that there's a briefing note on his, ta on his table and he's reading it and trying to figure out the relationship between what I'm saying and the briefing note from the 24-year-old in the back office, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, and it's... It, so, it's hard enough to get into that office in the first place. So the thick of it God is... God help you that you have to, you know, go through three meetings with the youngster who's... The, so the first. thick of it is basically a documentary. Um, <laughs> it's, I, I don't think, uh, you know, most ordinary citizens comprehend our, how dysfunctional our political system really yeah. has become. I th can I just say, I think another problem is that the Australian political class mis misrepresents and mischaracterises the Australian people, and especially on a, on a subject like multiculturalism, where you could have a completely different conversation in this country about immigration and boat people if politicians were brave enough to have it. I'll give you a little example of that. One day I was reporting on the boat people issue. It was a, it was a kind of curious thing to cover for the BBC, because when I used to ring up the desk in London and say, a boatload of 37 Sri Lankans have arrived, they'd say, why are you calling? <laughs> um, you know, the Rome correspondent's been on the phone with hundreds. And I say, well, I'm not calling because it's uh, the number, I'm calling because of the paranoid political reaction. Uh, the craziness that has accompanied the arrival of one boat, the kind of attitude that makes the Daily Telegraph call that kind of thing an invasion. That was the word they used on the front page. And that was even in the days when the numbers were, were very small. But I remember one day going out to the western suburbs of Sydney, an area which increasingly defines the national politics, and doing a story about boat people. And I was looking for your kind of classic battler who would say, I don't want boat people because they're wrecking my life, you know. And what struck me was the difficulty of finding people who would say that. And I was going up to people you know, stereotyping myself by going at people who got out the white utes, they had the Southern Cross tattooed on their shoulders, and I thought, you will surely say that. And they didn't. <laughs> but the one person who said it was the biggest community concern was the guy, the Labour politician who was running for re-election. He was the only guy who, when you asked him what is the biggest concern that you have, he would say, boat people. And it was ridiculous, and it spoke of this disconnect. You can have a completely different conversation about that if you were brave enough to do it. And even at the height of his, his political popularity, Kevin Rudd, was uh, unwilling to do that. They You've been very patient. Have, they probably would have much preferred boat people than a stupid pom like you. <laughs> <laughs> Questioning them Maybe. when they were trying to go and get a pom. Maybe. Like, Maybe. God. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> he's a pom, but he's not stupid. We, we were the original. Take it back. <laughs> I was paraphrasing. We were the original <laughs> boat people. Come on. <laughs> Thank you very much. We've heard some very good ideas this morning. I'm very keen to hear from the panel about how we harness the latent talent and build, uh, I guess, even more 
uh, strength within our communities, whether it's our Indigenous, Indigenous communities, whether it's in our political systems, whether it's amongst our refugee and migrant communities, to actually take and build capacity and take these ideas forward. Who wants to start? I, I think what I notice is that there is, you know, and they're often very, very small. People are, people are just going out and doing some of that stuff on their own and, and in all levels, and that can be you know, at a corporate level, it can be um, in, through small communities, not-for-profit. So some people are... But the problem about that is that increasingly the attitude is formal politics cannot help us, you know. It is irrelevant to engage the local member or it's irrelevant to think about that we might go around to the local branches of the Liberal Party or the Labor Party and talk about what we're doing. And interestingly, a couple of years ago, I was involved in a, in a kind of a strategic planning meeting with a large bank that does lots of work with, on the environment and other stuff. And um, it was interesting, everybody in that room, they're all saying, maybe we just need to ignore Canberra. Like, we go down to Canberra all the time and say, this is important to us, we need to think about this. We're so sick of waiting for them on climate change, we're big enough and forward-thinking enough for us to do it ourselves. So I think a lot of stuff is happening. I think the problem is, increasingly, you think what... The, you, increasingly, the people that are doing this stuff, just going out and doing it and have the talent and the desire, are feeling like there's no point in engaging politics unless it's through, for example, a grant process. And that's really worrying, that disconnect. Well, Marcia, that essentially was your theme to start off with. Give us the chance to do it ourselves. Well, yeah, I, look, I, I'm in awe of the people who worked so hard on the Empowered Communities report. They've done, I think, you know, the best piece of policy work I've seen in, in decades. So that bit of the job's done. So I recommend that you have a look at that. Uh, the other bit of the job from our point of view is uh, constitutional recognition. A lot of people say, oh, this is racist, this is giving, you know, one group a special standing in the constitution that nobody else has, or, you know, where are the practical outcomes from, from this? Well, there are very powerful arguments to completely dismiss the first proposition and also very powerful arguments to dismiss the second proposition that there are no practical outcomes. Um, and I, I don't know how much time I have to go into it not, here, but... Not much. Yeah. Running, running down. Uh, you know, if you uh, have a look at the constitutional history and, and how it's all worked, basically you have some... Our constitution is racist. It has two racist clauses in it, in that, you know, the clauses are based on the proposition of race. I think, you know, most Australians want to get rid of all of that nonsense. So if you go with us, with our proposition, you'll get rid of the racism from the constitution. And moreover, what you need to understand is that Aborigines have been treated you know, as a kind of constitutional default setting as the only race in Australia. You know, when you talk to people, what race do you belong to? And they go through all of their ancestry, you know. Uh, the, but, we you know, how white people don't have a race. It's everybody else who has a race. Well, the only race legally in Australia is Aborigines. Nobody else is actually treated as a race. And now, why should that be? Well, it's just utter rubbish. It's 19th century racism. It's social Darwinism. Let's get rid of it. 
The wonderful practical outcome from that immediately is that if let's let me go to this. A lot of people don't like to hear this argument. If Aborigines no longer think of themselves as that special race and no longer have that sense of special entitlement, then you know, they have to get on with it like everybody else. And the only thing that remains that makes them distinctly Aboriginal, and I'm not excluding the Torres Strait Islanders, but is our, all of our cultural heritage that comes from the pre-1788 civilisation that we had here and uh, our, our native title and other property interests that we inherit, you know, have inherited through our... Aboriginal ancestors from that time. So that means cultural heritage, native title, our languages, our kinship systems, you know, special cultural practices uh, that we want to retain. And so all the rest of it, all the economic engagement, you know, in time, you know, we'll reach parity and we'll get there faster if we get rid of the race concept. And if people stop treating us as, you know, that special class of idiots, um, that's up. the practical outcome. Marcia Langson, we've only got about 45 seconds left. We've, we've run down the clock. Uh, but I think we've done it with, yeah, productively, let's put it that way. I think there's been an enormous amount to think about out of this morning. I wish we had more time for questions, if anything. We're going to take a half-hour break now before the next session, and I've been asked to remind you that Rebecca and Nick will be signing their books uh, during that break. There's coffee and tea downstairs for full-day pass holders. And all that remains for me is to thank you all very, very much for coming, to thank Rebecca, Nick and Marcia.